Welcome to Aggravating Circumstances, a true crime podcast. I am your host, Laura Ceremi. This is Season 2, Episode 7. This is Part 2 of The Trial of Elisha Baxter. This is an ongoing story, so if you're just getting started, I recommend you hit pause, go back to the first episode of this season. We will wait for you. This podcast does include adult content, so please use caution. That's that's the goal. The goal of the whole point of telling your story is to get people to care in order to try to get, get you out of there. <laughs> yeah, that sounds <laughs> that sounds horrible. <laughs> try to get some try to get people to care. I, it does sound horrible, doesn't it? It does sound horrible, but I think I think the general population thinks if you're in prison, you're supposed to be there. You know, like that's right, just, it right, doesn't right. even dawn on them that maybe you shouldn't be there, you know? Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, that does sound horrible. I'm sorry. <laughs> um, <laughs> no, but it's true, though. This is an excerpt from Stand Your Ground Kills, how these NRA-backed laws promote racist violence from the Giffords Law Center. In July 2018, near Clearwater, Florida, 28-year-old Marquise McLaughlin was killed in front of his high school sweetheart and their three young children by a man who claimed that he was standing his ground. Marquise was unarmed and black. His shooter was armed and white. The fatal shooting of Marquise McLaughlin represents just one of many tragedies in which a dangerous transformation of the law of self-defense, which proponents have branded as stand your ground, has been used to justify murderous vigilantism, especially against black men. Marquise worked nights and watched his kids during the day while his longtime girlfriend, Brittany, was at work. He liked to rap and make music videos with friends and had recently taken up painting. He was rarely seen without his children in tow. The couple didn't know it yet, but Brittany was pregnant with their fourth child. On a Thursday afternoon in July, the family drove to a Circle A convenience store to buy chips and drinks. To avoid maneuvering around the trucks parked in front of the store, Brittany pulled her car into a handicapped spot and left it running while Marquise and their five-year-old son went inside. She and their other two children, an infant and a three-year-old, remained in the car. Less than a minute later, 47-year-old Michael Draca drove into the parking lot and parked his SUV perpendicular to Brittany's car. He began to walk around the vehicle and peer into the windows looking for handicap tags. He then approached Brittany's driver's side window, yelling and motioning with his hands. Fearful for her family's safety, Brittany cracked the window and asked him what his problem was. When the man yelled at her about parking in a handicap spot, she told him to mind his own business and said her boyfriend went into the store briefly to get snacks. Another customer arrived and observed an irate and confrontational Michael arguing with Brittany. The customer thought about intervening on Brittany's behalf, but instead saw Marquise paying at the counter and told him there was an altercation outside the store that he might want to get involved in. When Marquise arrived outside, Brittany was exiting the vehicle. Marquise shoved Michael away from her onto the ground. Less than three seconds later, while still on the pavement, Michael unholstered a 40 caliber handgun and pointed it directly at Marquise. Security camera footage shows that Marquise immediately backed at least 10 feet away from him 
and had begun to turn away when Michael fired a single shot into Marquis's chest. Marquis staggered into the store and collapsed in front of his five-year-old son, who watched, screaming, as his mother tried to apply pressure to the wound to stop the bleeding. Despite Brittany's efforts, she couldn't save Marquise's life. A day later, Pinellas County Sheriff Bob Galtieri announced that his agency would not arrest Michael because he believed shooting Marquise was within the bookends of stand your ground and within the bookends of force being justified under Florida law. Though he conceded that security camera footage showed Marquise backing away from the confrontation gave him pause, the sheriff pointed to Michael's claim that he feared he was going to be re-attacked as justification for using lethal force under Florida's law. Reporters soon discovered that Michael had angrily confronted a truck driver over the same parking spot just three months earlier. He had directed racial slurs at the driver and threatened to shoot him. Michael later called the truck driver's employer and told him he was lucky that he didn't blow his employee's head off. Six years earlier, the sheriff's office had also responded to two separate road rage incidents in which Michael Draca had drawn and pointed his handgun at other drivers. First at two teenagers who had cut him off by stopping at a yellow light, and then at a woman he said was driving too slowly through a school zone. Despite this history, Sheriff Galtieri held a press conference nearly two weeks after Marquis's death to reiterate his belief that Florida's stand-your-ground law provided Michael with immunity from arrest. On August 1st, one day after the press conference, the sheriff referred the case to the local state attorney's office for review. Based on the report submitted by a detective in the sheriff's office recommending that Michael be arrested for manslaughter, the state's attorney brought charges on August 13th and ultimately won a conviction, according to jurors, after multiple votes and almost entirely because a security camera had captured video footage of Marquis backing at least 10 feet away before Michael shot him. Justice was delayed in this case, even with security camera footage of a retreating unarmed victim, multiple credible eyewitnesses, and a shooter's known history of threatening violence with a firearm. Law enforcement and prosecutors have at least initially cited stand-your-ground laws in determining not to arrest the killers of other young men and boys of color, including Trayvon Martin, Jordan Davis, Jamonta Miles, Daniel Adkins Jr., and more recently, Ahmaud Arbery, to name only a few. In countless other cases, justice was not delayed but denied. A growing body of research has established that stand-your-ground laws lead to significantly more killing and have no deterrent effect on other crimes. These laws suffer from pervasive racial and gender bias in their application, deepening disparities in the legal system, and disproportionately justifying the use of violence by people who are white and male against people who are not. I encourage you to read the rest of this um, excellent, excellent article by the Giffords Law Center. Six years after George Zimmerman killed an unarmed black 17-year-old and was acquitted, Michael Draca, a 47-year-old white man, picked a fight with Marquise McLaughlin, a 28-year-old African-American in Clearwater, Florida, on July 19th of 2018. The fight that he started over his girlfriend parking in a handicapped parking space ended with Michael Draca shooting and killing Marquise McLaughlin. No charges were brought against Michael Draca, and the county sheriff cited the stand-your-ground laws. This was incredibly reminiscent of the Trayvon Martin case. 
There were only charges brought after nationwide protests. Michael Draco was eventually charged and was convicted of manslaughter and sentenced to 20 years for starting a fight and shooting and killing an unarmed African-American. Meanwhile, Elisha Baxter was stabbed in the chest and is serving 32 years for something that most everyone would agree is self-defense and at the very worst should have been manslaughter. This is yet another example of the racial disparities we find in our system with charges and sentencing. You know what got me is the uh, evil and malice and hatred attempt. How a person does not have the ability to manage. So human emotions are very close to uh, math problems. We only have the ability to process one at a time. Did they have um, like a psychiatrist or somebody come in and, and talk about the response during an incident like that? I'm not sure, but one thing, I'm not sure about that, but one thing about it, those juries was not of his own peers because if you're looking at jury, when you're supposed to have juries of your own peers, that means of likeness, not just physical likeness. You got to have someone in there. I don't care if it's a military uh, person, an ex-police officer, or someone in there that has had bodily harm like that. That's the only way for you to know or to get an honest reaction. Because if I was on there, even if it wasn't my brother, if it was not my brother and I was called to end the jury stand to speak on someone who reacted after being stabbed or shot, I would tell them straight up, uh, <laughs> everything you were talking about is not possible. You don't think about none of that. I was shot. I thought about none of that. The only thing I was thinking about is safety for myself. That's it. You know, in my in my case, in my case, um, in my in, in, when I got shot, when I got shot in that situation, you know, the only thing I cared about was safety, getting getting safe, getting free. I thought I was gone. I thought the guy was gonna finish the job. You know, I thought I was gone. Yeah, I fought the guy. I fought him for my life. I fought that guy for my life. One evening at a shopping center in Florida, Alan Pierce was using a telephone. A man named Patrick Bemben then started taunting him and followed him out from the phone booth. Patrick then struck Alan in the face with a beer can and then proceeded to punch and kick him. Alan, with no other options, fought back, eventually getting the better of Patrick, who then retreated. As he was retreating, he made a sudden move where Alan thought he was trying to secure a weapon. He then pulled a firearm and shot him twice, killing him. Alan Pierce was then convicted of second-degree murder. However, this was overturned by the District Court of Appeal of Florida in a decision that said, under these circumstances, 
the jury could properly have found that since Patrick Bemben was not, in fact, armed, Alan Pierce had overreacted, had used excessive force, and thus was guilty of manslaughter. There was no basis, however, for a finding that in shooting Bemben, the defendant acted with a depraved mind, regardless of human life, an indispensable element of the crime of second-degree murder. To the contrary, the evidence is undisputed that the homicide occurred only at the culmination of a fight in which Pierce was only a reluctant participant. The reduction of the second-degree murder conviction to one for manslaughter is mandated by the indistinguishable case of Martinez v. State. That brings us to the case of Rinaldo Martinez. He was called by his daughter, who was fearful of being attacked or physically harmed by her husband. So he rushed to her house, where he then had an altercation with her husband and shot and killed him. The Florida District Court of Appeal said that the evidence was overwhelming that Martinez killed the deceased shortly after the defendant responded to his daughter's telephone call to him to come to the deceased house to protect his daughter against a physical attack, and the defendant was physically assaulted by the deceased upon his arrival at the home. It says, nevertheless, we agree with the state that there was sufficient, although conflicting, evidence adduced at trial upon which a jury could have reasonably rejected the claim of self-defense and concluded that the defendant used excessive force to defend himself or his daughter. The defendant killed the deceased with a firearm while the deceased was unarmed, under circumstances which, under one reasonable view of the evidence, did not warrant the infliction of deadly force. As such, a classic case of manslaughter, based on adequate legal provocation, was therefore presented. So this is two cases that the Court of Appeal in Florida said was not second-degree murder. It was manslaughter. So we have Martinez versus State and Pierce versus State, both of whom were individuals that killed someone who was unarmed, and they said there was grounds to say it wasn't self-defense because they were unarmed, and it was possibly excessive force, but it was not second-degree murder. So let's talk about Elisha's case. Elisha was stabbed in the chest. This was not a fist fight. This was not someone who was unarmed. This was someone who had a tactical knife that he stabbed him in the chest with. And after Elisha shot him, he was still holding the knife in his hand. If he had killed Elisha with that knife... I am 100% certain that he would have been prosecuted for killing Elisha. And here we have two cases in Florida where individuals killed people that were unarmed and they called it manslaughter. But Elisha shot someone who had just stabbed him in the chest. This wasn't some mythical possibility that maybe he's going for a weapon. He had already had a weapon and used it on him, and they called this secondary murder instead of manslaughter or self-defense. This case really boggles my mind, and I truly don't understand why they did what they did. 
I don't understand any of this until I start to put the entire picture together about what Elisha's brother Mark told me about their family having a target on their back. So it's always been a target on our family back. I mean, they, I remember one time they arrested one of my brothers and they had his bicycle and they drove by our house and they got on a loud speaker and said, look who we got. I'm going to read some of Elisha's court documents and just a reminder that the person that stabbed him is D and his friend we're calling Mr. B. So I will use those names as I read this document. Elisha Baxter was charged and convicted of the second degree murder of D. It was undisputed at trial that D stabbed Elisha Baxter multiple times before Mr. Baxter armed himself and shot him. The sole issue raised on appeal is whether trial counsel was ineffective for failing to argue that D's violent attack was sufficient provocation to require a reduction of the charge to manslaughter. Elisha Baxter and his friend Mr. B pulled into the parking lot of Grumpy's Bar. As they exited Elisha's car, they approached a third man, D, and began to speak to him. What began as a conversation quickly elevated into a confrontation as D and Elisha had been in a fist fight two weeks before. And small interruption, we'll talk about that fight in a later episode. Elisha knew D was a violent man because he had previously heard him bragging about how he had broken into a house and assaulted the people inside, so he thought the two might come to blows. What Elisha didn't know was that while he was unarmed, D had brought a knife. One of the bartenders working that day thought that the confrontation might turn physical, so she stepped outside the bar and began to record the men with her cell phone. As the men began to get close to one another, she saw D bend over and pick something from the floor, which he used to stab Elisha multiple times. Police are investigating a bar fight that spilled out into the street. In the end, one person will be left shot to death. Another rushed to the hospital with a stab wound. He has a knife! He has a knife! He stabbed him! He stabbed him! Hey! He stabbed you? Ran his ass off. Oh, he got the gun. Oh, my God! Oh, my God! Police confirm one person was shot and died on scene. Another person was stabbed and was transported to regional hospital in critical condition. According to her, the brutal stabbing came out of nowhere as Elisha was unarmed and the men had not begun to fight. Elisha tried to escape, but Dee stabbed him again, causing him to trip and fall. Elisha stumbled back to the safety of his car while Dee and Mr. B took off running. A cell phone video shows Mr. B running in a zigzag pattern while Dee, still armed with a knife, chased behind him. Elisha, afraid that his friend was about to become Dee's next victim, armed himself with a legally owned firearm that he kept in his truck and went after the two men. 
As Elisha gave chase, he began to fire at D, distracting him long enough for Mr. B to escape to the safety of a nearby gas station. D ducked into the backyard of an abandoned house, and Elisha followed out of sight of the witnesses at the bar. According to Elisha, at this point, D, still holding the knife he had used to viciously attack him moments earlier, began to lunge and charge at him. Elisha fired. D was found dead by police, hands still clutching the knife he'd used to try to murder Elisha. Elisha drove himself to a hospital and was airlifted to Kendall trauma because of the critical nature of his injuries. Elisha had multiple stab wounds on his chest and arm, resulting in large scars and permanent disfigurement. Photographs of Elisha showing the gruesome and deadly nature of his injuries are included in the record. Elisha remained in the hospital under critical condition for two weeks. After he recovered from the life-threatening injuries, the state charged Elisha with second-degree murder. The case proceeded to a jury trial. At the close of the state's evidence, defense counsel did not argue that Dee's acts of viciously stabbing Elisha was sufficient provocation as a matter of law to reduce the charge of second-degree murder to manslaughter. The case was submitted to the jury who returned a verdict of guilty to second-degree murder. The court sentenced him to 32 years in prison with a 25-year minimum mandatory. The evidence at trial was insufficient to sustain a charge of second-degree murder. Dee's act of stabbing Elisha multiple times was sufficient provocation to require a reduction of the charge to manslaughter as a matter of law. It was undisputed at the trial that Dee viciously stabbed Elisha when he was unarmed. This brutal attack nearly killed Elisha and left his arm and body shredded and covered with scars. It took a team of skilled physicians two weeks of treatment before Elisha could leave the hospital. No party disputed that it was only after Dee attempted to murder Elisha by stabbing him in the chest that Elisha armed himself. No party disputed that it was only after Dee plunged a knife into Elisha's chest multiple times that Elisha fired the fatal shots that ended Dee's life. Florida law provides that a homicide committed in the heat of passion created by, quote, adequate provocation as might obscure the reason or dominate the volition of an ordinary man, end quote, is not a murder, but a manslaughter. If the evidence at trial shows a killing in the heat of passion that occurred when the defendant acted in a condition of mind or depravity that characterizes murder in the second degree is absent, then a defendant charged with murder is entitled to a reduction of the charge to manslaughter as a matter of law. If there is any case that shows that a homicide was committed in a manner that does not evince a depraved mind regardless of human life, but rather from the infirmity of passion to which even good men are subject, it must be this case. This court should find that Dee's act of violently stabbing Elisha multiple times in an attempt to end his life was sufficient provocation as a matter of law and reduce the charge to manslaughter. This court did exactly that in an analogous situation in Pierce versus State, the story I told you earlier, where Patrick hit Alan Pierce in the face with a beer can. In that case, the victim first struck Pierce in the face with a beer can, causing him significant injury. The two began to fight when Pierce got the better of the struggle. The victim retreated, made a sudden movement that Pierce believed was an attempt to secure a weapon, and Pierce drew a derringer from his back pocket and shot twice, killing the victim. This court held there was no basis for a finding that in shooting the victim, the defendant acted with a depraved mind regardless of human life, an indispensable element of the crime of second-degree murder. The court reduced Pierce's conviction for second-degree murder to manslaughter. 
The only difference here is that Dee's attack on Elisha was far more violent. Elisha was attacked with a knife multiple times as opposed to the single throw of a can of beer. Elisha did not suspect that Dee might be armed. He knew he was, having just been stabbed multiple times. And rather than simply believing that Dee was retreating, Elisha had reason to believe that Dee was chasing his friend Mr. B in order to stab him as well. These facts present no basis for finding that in shooting Dee, Elisha acted with a depraved mind regardless of human life. At best, the jury could have properly found that Elisha overreacted and used excessive force and thus was guilty of manslaughter. This court should, as it did in Pierce, order that Elisha's conviction of second-degree murder be reversed and remand for a judgment of conviction to manslaughter and resentencing. Tragically, what I just read was from Elisha's appeal, which just a couple weeks ago, was denied. Thank you for listening to this installment of Aggravating Circumstances. Please take a moment and give us a five-star review. It really does make a difference. Meanwhile, I hope everyone stays safe. Don't forget to wear your seatbelts. Don't forget those kids in the back seat. If you don't know what I'm talking about, definitely check out season one if you've missed it. Otherwise, we will see you next time. Mm-hmm.